our Lord's death was not accidental but providential. It, this is not coincidence, this is providence. This is not mere fate, this is foreordination. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 10.15 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, I want you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, if you haven't already, Mark chapter 9. And we are just working our way through the Gospel of Mark. For those of you who are visiting with us, it is wonderful to have you with us. It is our normal custom to take a book of the Bible and to begin at chapter 1, verse 1, and to work our way through until we get to the end of the book. And we've been in the Gospel of Mark for quite some time now. And uh, this morning, we want to look together at verses 30 through verse 32. I want to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Mark 9, beginning in verse 30. They, referring to Jesus and the apostles, went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Please be seated as we ask the Lord to help us understand our passage this morning. Father, for the spiritual meal that we are about to receive, we pray for your blessing. For the spiritual renewal we expect to receive, we give you thanks. And for the spiritual enlightening that leads to conviction, Father, we pray that we would respond by the power of your blessed Holy Spirit. To God, three in one, be the glory alone, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One particular Sunday in Geneva, John Calvin stood behind his pulpit there at St. Peter's Church and made the following remark on a certain holiday. He said, and I quote, For when you elevate one day alone for the purpose of worshiping God, you have just turned it into an idol. True, you insist that you have done so for the honor of God, but it is more for the honor of the devil. For when you elevate one day alone for the purpose of worshiping God, Calvin says, you have just turned it into an idol. True, you insist that you have done it so for the honor of God, but it is more so that you have done it for the honor of the devil. That quote reminds me of my former secretary, at the church that I pastored before we started this church. Every year, uh, the week or two preceding what our culture refers to as Easter Sunday, my former secretary used to always point out to the pastoral staff that we needed to get ready. 
because soon the Easter lilies would be coming out of nowhere. And by that, she was not referring to the blossoming of flowers, but rather to the religious people of our particular community who only decided to come to church once a year, and they chose Easter Sunday as that particular year. She referred to them as Easter lilies. Now, there is a certain irony in this, which poses a question that I think we need to ask, and the question is this, based upon what Calvin told his congregation, do we see the resurrection of the Lord Jesus as more important because we make a big deal about it once a year, or versus those who see every Lord's Day as a celebration of Christ's resurrection? Which group of people view the resurrection of the Lord with greater significance? Those who celebrate it once a year with the festivities of all that is included in that, or those that celebrate it every week of their lives as they gather with God's people on the Lord's day because the Lord rose from the dead on the first day of the week. I believe the latter is more in line with the Bible's portrayal of the importance of the resurrection. We celebrate his resurrection each Lord's day because he rose on the first day of the week. And that is why the apostles in their pattern of worship, shifted the corporate worship of God's people from Saturday to Sunday. We live out of the new creation of God, beginning on Sunday, the resurrection day. Our new Sabbath day was paved by the resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I say all of that to say that usually I do not go out of my way to preach a quote-unquote Easter sermon. I just keep moving along in the normal exposition of whatever book we are in. But today you will hear a quote-unquote Easter sermon because the path of our text quite naturally takes us there. In fact, Jesus predicts here in verse 31 that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men, he's going to be killed, and that after he is killed, he's going to three days later rise again. And verse 32 says, they, that is the apostles, did not understand the saying. Now, I do not believe that they misunderstood the fact that Jesus would die. He had already made another prediction just a chapter earlier in chapter 8. If you go with me to verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And then at the end of it, he says, after three days, rise again. That was just a few days before, and the apostles were so focused about the prediction of our Lord's death that they probably didn't even hear him say anything about his resurrection. But by the second prediction that we read about here in verse 31 of chapter 9, I don't think that they are so much stumbling upon the reality of his impending death as much as they are stumbling about the reality and confusion they have regarding his resurrection. The very fact that Christ's followers, namely the women, went to prepare Jesus' body for burial with ointments and perfumes shows that even after his death, the followers of Christ were not expecting him to rise again. This is why Jesus predicts in three chapters, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, that he will suffer He will be crucified, 
and he will rise again from the dead. Verse 31 is the second prediction, but go with me to chapter 10 to see the third prediction. We already saw the first one in chapter 8. Verse 33 of chapter 10, see, Jesus says, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. It says in verse 32 of our text, they did not understand the saying. They suffered from what I want to refer to as Easter lily theology. They failed to grasp, quite frankly, the significance, and perhaps they weren't even believing in the reality that Jesus would be raised from the dead. They weren't really much different than religious people in our own day who see Easter as a once a year celebration, really a secularized event, an opportunity to go away on the weekend, an opportunity to use quote unquote Good Friday as an opportunity to maybe have a three day weekend if they can get off work, sort of cultural holiday rooted in paganism, agnosticism, no thought for God, no regard for Christ. And yet many religious people seem to miss the significance of the resurrection because they fall into that sort of cultural wave and cultural trend and they view Easter as the only time in which we are to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. And when you do that, you miss the significance of the resurrection. If you believe that way, you hold to Easter lily theology. Celebrating the resurrection once a year. The disciples were so caught up in the death of our Lord that they didn't even have eyes to see the significance of the resurrection. But as you well know, Paul was very clear about the fact that apart from the resurrection of Christ, there is no hope of eternal life. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And Paul will later say in this passage that if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So this morning, I cannot stress enough, really two realities. Number one, our tendency not to see the significance of the resurrection. And secondly, the tendency of the apostles in the midst of their doubts and confusion to miss the significance of the resurrection. And therefore, I think these three verses, verse 30, verse 31, and verse 32 of Mark chapter 9, help us to see the necessity of Jesus' death and resurrection. Reality is not merely to be celebrated once a year. Reality is not meant to be celebrated merely once a season. No. Realities that are meant to be celebrated every single Lord's Day. Every day that we gather together as God's people on the first day of the week, we are simply reminding one another of the necessity of Christ's death and resurrection because our eternity depends upon his death, suffering for the sins of his people, and his resurrection, being raised to new life so that we too can be raised to new life, both spiritually and physically. 
And in these three short verses that have for us this second prediction of our Lord's passion, there are three points that I want to outline to draw our attention to the significance of the necessity of Jesus' death and resurrection. First of all, I want you to note with me what I'll refer to as the focused isolation. Secondly, we'll look at the firm prediction. And third, the fearful confusion. Notice with me, first of all, what I'll refer to as the focused isolation. Look at verse 30. It says, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, the beginning of verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples. Now, verse 30 says, They went on from there. Went on from where? Well, they are located right now in Caesarea Philippi, the area of Caesarea Philippi. A lot of things have occurred in chapter 8 in this particular area. In verse 29, we saw the great confession of the apostle Peter. We also saw, as we just alluded to it, the first announcement of the passion of our Lord, his suffering and his death in chapter 8 and verse 31. It was also in this region that Jesus was transfigured before three of the apostles, Peter, James, and John, likely on Mount Hermon, which was there in Caesarea Philippi. And after coming down from that mountain, Jesus was approached by a father whose boy was demon-possessed, and Jesus healed that boy. They went on from there. From the scenes of all that took place in Caesarea Philippi, they're now leaving that area, and as verse 30 says, they passed through Galilee. Now underline the word through, because the emphasis that Mark is placing upon the journey of our Lord is that he is merely passing through Galilee. Galilee had been his home. Galilee is where he was from. Galilee was where his headquarters for ministry was, operating out of Capernaum as he lived with the apostle Peter. But now, he is merely passing through his home. He's passing through his headquarters because he is on his way to a more important place, namely Jerusalem. Now, this is considered, particularly if you read, for example, William Hendrickson's commentary, This is considered the retirement ministry of our Lord. His greater Galilean ministry was when he was in Galilee, always in the limelight, always in the public, in the synagogues, preaching sermons, performing healings. That era has ended in the life of our Lord. He is in the retirement ministry where he is seeking isolation. In fact, the end of verse 30 and the beginning of verse 31 tell us why. He did not want anyone to know He did not want anyone to know what? That he was just going to pass through Galilee. He's seeking isolation. Why? Verse 31, for, here is the purpose, he was teaching his disciples. Very simply, Jesus is pursuing a focused isolation with the disciples to instruct them. Now, they're going to pass through Capernaum one last time. We'll see that in chapter 9 and verse 33, but they won't stay there long because chapter 10 and verse 1 tells us that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He is on his way to Jerusalem, and this is the first leg on his journey to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. And there are many lessons that Jesus instructs the disciples in, from chapter 9, verse 30, to chapter 9 and verse 50, many lessons that Jesus taught them. 
But the focus of Jesus in this particular section of Scripture, at least in his mind and in his heart, is not so much didactic instruction as much as dedicated intention to go to Jerusalem, to suffer for the sins of his people, to be buried, and to rise again the third day. He was focused upon that. He was on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus' isolation was a matter of his focus to obey the will of his Father. This was the reason he was sent into the world. He had a focus to go where the Father had sent him from the beginning, and that was to to Golgotha, the place of the skull, where he would offer himself up as a sacrifice for sins. Luke 9.51 puts it this way. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He turned away from his home of Galilee And he set his face toward Jerusalem. To borrow the language of Isaiah 50 and verse 7, he set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. That's a figure of speech because flint was a very hard rock and Jesus was determined in a very hard manner that he could not be changed upon to go to Jerusalem. He could not be moved. He was like a fixed rock unable to be talked out of his destiny foreordained by the Father from before the foundation of the world. And I just want to say this must have been quite a sad time for the disciples. They didn't know how much longer their Lord would be with them. Time was ticking. And they must have basked in having Jesus all to themselves for the most part. After all, Jesus was constantly taken away from His instruction to the disciples from this particular person that needed healing or this particular person that needed an exorcism, perhaps a dispute with the religious leaders. Now they have Jesus to themselves, but it was bittersweet, wasn't it? Such isolation also reminded them what it would be like when he was gone and they would be left alone, rejected by the Romans, rejected by the religious establishment of Israel, rejected by the people of Israel largely. They hadn't forgotten the first prediction of his looming suffering and death. That was still on their minds. And though Jesus promised his resurrection, as we're going to see, the disciples during this period of isolation would not have fully grasped the significance and the necessity of Jesus suffering, dying, and rising again. And that is why along the way, Jesus reminded them yet again of his coming suffering, death, and resurrection. We move from the focused isolation, number two, to the firm prediction. Notice the rest of verse 31. He was teaching his disciples, and here is the firm, rock-like prediction by the one who set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. That was the focus of his teaching. The imperfect tense is used here in Greek for teaching. It's from the Greek word didasko. And it has the idea that Jesus just repeatedly and continually kept coming back to this theme of suffering. 
No matter what lessons Jesus taught them in this period of isolation, he constantly and repeatedly kept coming back to what was central to his mission, and that was the reality that he would suffer and die. He simply would not let it go. And you might say, why would he continue to repeat it? Well, at first glance, this is the same sort of prediction that he gave in chapter 8 and verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. But there are some differences with this second prediction. Mark wants to bring to the surface some elements of theology that you need to understand if you're going to understand the gospel properly. And I'll begin by just saying this. The death of Christ was not a tragic accident. The death of Christ was not something that just happened to happen. And God had to figure out his way through what happened. No, this is a firm prediction. What occurred in the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ occurred because of the sovereignty of God. Did it occur because of the sinfulness of man? Yes, but did it occur because of the sovereignty of God? Absolutely. And Jesus actually brings that out in the second prediction. Notice, first of all, like the first prediction, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. Do you see that there in verse 31? He refers to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man. That is a messianic title taken from Daniel chapter 7. They were used to Jesus referring to himself that way, but as we're going to see in a moment, they did not fully grasp or understand the identity of the Daniel 7 figure. Perhaps more to the point, this is a deliberate play on words. Notice Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. The God-Man who lives as a human among humans, will be rejected by humans. The very humans that he came to live among. The very humans that he ministered to would be the very humans that would spit upon him. The very humans that he would preach the gospel to would be the very humans that would reject the very word of God. In his first prediction, the enemies, you might well note, were the religious elite. Chapter 8, verse 31, the Son of Man must suffer many things and notice, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. It always came back to this motley crew. Israel had a problem because they had a problem with disqualified elders, disqualified scribes, disqualified priests. It was corrupt through and through. That's why they rejected the Messiah. And it's easy to point our fingers at them. They are culpable. But notice the emphasis here is not the religious leaders in the second prediction. It's that Jesus would be delivered over into the hands of men. It is plural. This is a whole company, a whole lot of people that Jesus is referring to. This is all of humanity against Christ. This is man's inhumanity, we could say, against God who became humanity. This is the Son of Man, the God-Man, who is rejected by other men and women. And I just want to pause to say that all of us must admit this morning 
that because Adam is our federal representative, and because we have inherited a sin nature from Adam, that all of humanity is guilty regarding the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is our sin that delivered Christ upon the cross. Not just the religious leaders, not just the people of Israel, not just Judas, not just the Roman soldiers. It was our sin. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And Mark beautifully brings this out by quoting the words of our Lord that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Generally speaking, all of humanity is guilty before God for the crucifixion of Christ. And yet, as believers, and because of the glorious doctrine of our union with Christ, we also understand that as his people, we were not only responsible for his death, but that we also died with him. And that our sins died with him. And when he was raised from the grave, we were raised to newness of life. We are found in him. And in his act of death, it counts for our sakes and for our souls to give us new life. But most importantly, this prediction in verse 31 emphasizes not just who he was delivered to, but how he was delivered. Notice Jesus says very carefully, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. That little phrase, will be delivered, it's the Greek word paradidomai. It could literally mean handed over, but in the Greek it is a divine passive. A divine passive. And in the Greek, a divine passive simply means that God is the unnamed subject. So the innuendo in the Greek is not that Judas delivered him up. It's not in the ultimate sense that your sin delivered him up. Listen to this. It's that God the Father delivered him up. It was the will of God that Jesus be delivered up, a divine passive. The subject is unnamed. That it is God himself who hands over his son to be slain. God handed over his son first in the incarnation. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And then, the place of the skull, Mount Calvary, it was the father through the instrumentation of human beings that delivered up his son to be a sacrifice for our sins. What you need to see here is that our Lord's death was not accidental but providential. This is not coincidence, this is providence. This is not mere fate, this is foreordination. That word delivered up, paradidomai, perhaps shockingly, is the same exact Greek word, divine passive, that is used in Romans 1. When Paul says, therefore God gave them up, delivered them. In the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up. Same word, to their dishonorable passions. 
Verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. God delivered them. God handed them over. God hands over the most wicked of wicked sinners in the same way that he handed over his own son. In our place, condemned he stood. He took our guilt, he took our sin, and he gives us his righteousness in exchange. A couple of more verses using this same language of being delivered up. You're familiar with it. Romans 4, verse 24. Our sin was counted to him. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. God the Father delivered him up. Romans 4.25 or you're even more familiar with this. Romans 8, what shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He, that is God, who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up, gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It is the Father that gave the Son up on Mount Calvary to be the sacrifice for sins. The Apostle Paul would say in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it wasn't just the Father that delivered him and gave the Son up. It was Jesus himself who willingly gave himself up. This is a work of the Trinity. This is a work of God three in one. This is not an accident. Ephesians 5, verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. He delivered himself up, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And that is why Paul told husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, some translations have, instead of delivered up, or delivered in two, they have it translated betrayed. And that has led many to assume that what Jesus is speaking about here is the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. And while it's true according to John 17, 12, that Judas betrayed our Lord so that the scripture might be fulfilled, Jesus is not speaking about his betrayal by Judas. He's already mentioned that he will be betrayed into the hands of men. It's a whole company of people. But Jesus' focus is really not men who do it, but God who delivers his son. In fact, the central verse of Mark's gospel, Mark 10, 45, is that Jesus came to be a ransom for many. This is why Jesus came. For even the son of man, same title, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This was the will of the Father. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Or Isaiah 53 and verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 53. This is the suffering servant passage 
What does verse 6 say? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And it was the Lord who laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord delivered Christ up and placed our sin upon him. Verse 7, he was oppressed, afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent. He opened not his mouth. And what does verse 10 say? Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. To crush him. That was the will of the Lord. To put him to grief. To shame. When his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The scriptures teach over and over and over again and I believe it's exactly what Jesus is teaching in this firm prediction that God is the one who ordained Christ's suffering. That is critical. His death at the hands of men will be the means whereby he brings life to man. Now none of this removes the responsibility of Judas. If you go with me to um, Mark chapter 14... In verse 21, for the Son of Man goes, he's going to go to Jerusalem, go to the cross. This is right before the institution of the Lord's Supper or the Passover. The Son of Man goes to do what he needs to do, what he must do. As it is written of him, it's been predicted that he will suffer. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Oh, Judas is personally responsible. But God is providentially responsible. You say, well, I don't understand that. Well, join the club. You're not meant to understand that. And if you press that too far and try to understand that in the wisdom of your own philosophy, you may end up rejecting the faith. Or you may end up rejecting what Scripture clearly teaches. I don't like the translation betrayed. This prediction is not about betrayal. It's about the opposite. It's about the faithfulness of Christ to do what the Father sent him to do. It's about the faithfulness of the Lord Jesus to fulfill the agreed upon covenant of redemption made among the members of the Trinity that the Father would send the Son into the world and that he would die for the sins of his people. Jesus said over and over and over again, I have not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is Jesus saying that here, to borrow the language of Peter in Acts 2.23, he was delivered up, same language, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And that's what Jesus says. He predicts this a second time because they're not getting it. You don't understand, apostles. This is of divine necessity. This is the will of God. That the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And what will happen? We'll notice verse 31, very simply, and they will kill him. They will kill him. Just as he predicted earlier in chapter 8, verse 31, And when he is killed, verse 31 says, after three days, he will rise. He will rise. To be clear, Jesus' body rested in the grave three 
day and night periods. Part of Friday, all of Saturday, part of Sunday. By the Jewish reckoning of time, this was three days. It wasn't three literal 24-hour periods. By the Jewish reckoning of time, it was three parts of three days. One whole day being Saturday or the Sabbath. But what I want you to note there at the end of verse 31 is how Jesus phrases this. He says, after three days, he will rise. It's kind of interesting. The first century during the days of our Lord witnessed many resurrections, but none of them involved the person needing raised to raise themselves. That's exactly what Jesus says. It says, he will rise. In other words, by his own power, he will rise. The very one killed. The very one put to death. He would say, often, and the Gospel of John is notorious for recording these sayings of our Lord. John 10, for example, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This was a willingness of Christ. I lay down my life for the sheep. Or, for this reason the Father loves me. Why? Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It's one thing for Jesus to raise others from the dead, but who's going to raise him when he's dead? Jesus says, I'm going to do it. I have authority to do it. He also predicted that in John 2. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? And verse 21 says, according to John, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. He had the power. That's why he says, I am the resurrection and the life. That's why Revelation 1.18, quoting Jesus in his revelation to John, Jesus says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now hold on to that thought and turn back with me to Matthew chapter 16. Because Matthew records this with a little different language. And there's no contradiction here. Jesus here foretells his death and resurrection in Matthew 16 verse 21. It says, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day, notice the language, be raised. Be raised. In Mark, he will raise himself. He will rise. In Matthew, he will be raised. Something performed upon him. Both, of course, are true. The Father raised the Son. Jesus raised himself. You've not forgotten the Trinity. We believe in one God, three persons. In Acts chapter 2, this was precisely Peter's point, Peter said in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, verse 24, God raised him up. God raised him up. Chapter 3 of Acts in verse 26, God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. God having raised up this servant. Jesus was raised by the power of the Father. Acts 10 and verse 40, but God raised him up on the third day. This was always the record of the apostles. This was a work of God. And as for this fact, God raised him from the dead. Acts 13.34. No more to return to corruption. And what did Paul tell the Areopagus? In Acts chapter 17, he told them that they were seeking the true God and all their false worship. And he says that God has fixed a day, Acts 17.31, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The power of the Father to raise his Son from the dead. Back to Romans 4.24, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, and he was raised. Again, the idea being by the Father. Or Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus was raised by the power and the glory of the Father. You say, well, which is it? Did the Father raise him? Did Jesus raise himself? Yes, yes, and not only that, but the Holy Spirit played a part in this as well. 1 Timothy 3, 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. Vindicated by the Spirit means that God, through the power of the Spirit, vindicated the acceptable sacrifice of Christ's death by raising him from the dead. Christ was vindicated. God was vindicated. And all of his people are vindicated. We're all justified because of his death and resurrection. So the resurrection of Jesus is the result of the miraculous and supernatural work of our triune God. These three are one, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. Equal in power and glory, as the confession says. This is all a work of God. This is only something God could do. And when you celebrate the resurrection of Christ once a year, you diminish the significance of what God has done. It is God who delivered him up. It is God the Father who delivered him up on the cross. It is God the Father that punished the Son to be the bearer of the sins of his people. It is God the Son who offered himself up. It is God the Holy Spirit that empowered the ministry of Christ in the life of Christ. And it is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. It is a supernatural, unbelievable miracle of all miracles that if it is denied, you cannot be a Christian today. And yet, 
As glorious as this prediction was, and as clear as Jesus was about it, being the Father's firm will that he would accomplish this unhindered, the disciples were still confused. They had little understanding that he would raise himself from the dead. Such was absolutely incomprehensible. So now we move, number one, from the focused isolation, number two, the firm prediction, finally to number three, the fearful confusion. The fearful confusion. Notice with me there in verse 32, this is a parenthetical expression by Mark. After the prediction, it says, but they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. It's fair to say they were fearfully confused. Confused about what? Well, the confusion wasn't so much over the meaning of Jesus' words. He was clear that it was the Father's will for him to suffer at the hands of men and to die. And it was equally clear, this is now the second time Jesus has said it, that after his death, he would rise again. In fact, Jesus was clear in the second prediction that the power to rise would even come from himself. So the confusion is not that of a confusion of meaning. They understood the meaning, but at the same time, they were confused about the divine necessity of the whole deal and how it would happen. That's why verse 32 says they were afraid to ask him. Remember the last time Peter questioned the necessity of this? He was rebuked. And our Lord referred to Peter as Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Without the death of Christ, there can be no resurrection. And without the resurrection, there can be no salvation. They are suffering from Easter lily theology. Failing to grasp the centrality of the resurrection for their own salvation. Apart from his death, he couldn't be raised. Apart from his resurrection, there is no salvation. Our faith is futile. We are still in our sins, according to the Apostle Paul. They were afraid. It's the Greek word, agnaeo. It could literally be translated, they were ignorant, or this, the meaning escaped them. The meaning escaped them. There was a holy fear, we could say, of not understanding something they were ignorant of, but that they knew to have deeply profound consequences. Why were they so confused? Well, it goes back to their understanding of the Old Testament. If they were to take an Old Testament scroll out and go back to the book of Ezekiel, they would have found that the title Son of Man, to which Jesus refers to himself in this prediction, the title Son of Man referred, at least in that context, to Ezekiel himself. And it simply meant that Ezekiel was a faithful servant of God. And that's really essentially what the title originally meant. But then as you fast forward in the scroll of the Old Testament and go to the book of Daniel, and no doubt these passages are going on in the minds of the apostles, they would have read in Daniel chapter 7 about the Son of Man, the Son of Man who receives glory and honor, the Son of Man who receives dominion, and glory, and a kingdom from the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days, obviously a reference to God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Ancient of Days. And so they are trying to piece together their bad theology. They're trying to understand how this Son of Man 
who Jesus clearly said he was, could merely be a faithful servant, and how, as the Son of Man, he would receive glory and honor and power and dominion and a kingdom that was everlasting and still be the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. How could it be the will of the Father to crush him? How could it be the will of the Father to lay the sins of mankind on the pure, unblemished Lamb of God? How could he be a person of shame and at the same time a person of glory? And dearly beloved, understand this morning that unless you recognize Jesus as both a person of shame and a person of glory, you can have nothing to do with him. It is through his death upon the cross the shameful despising of humanity of which we are all guilty, the shame and the scorn of the cross, which is a stumbling block to many. It is that very shame you must embrace because if you don't embrace that shame, you're not embracing the Savior of that shame. And on the other hand, he is a Savior of glory because he did not stay in the grave. But he... He rose again three days later. He is a person of shame. He is a person of glory. He is a savior of shame and he is a savior of glory. He was shamed and bore your sins upon the cross so that he could be raised in glory and give you new life. It's a package deal. He took our sins upon his shoulders and he gives to us his righteousness in exchange. He swallowed death so that we could have life eternal. But they have Easter lily theology. The passion of our Lord, the significance of his death and resurrection is lost upon them. And this focused isolation in teaching the disciples and this firm prediction regarding the adamacy that this must happen leads to their fearful confusion. They are short-sighted on the importance of what Jesus is saying. Could they not say with the demon-possessed boy's father, I believe, but help my unbelief. You will never believe in the gospel apart from recognizing the scandal and the shame of a perfect, sinless, holy son of God of God being destroyed in your place so that you could have eternal life. It was your sin that put Christ upon the cross and he willingly gave himself up and the father ordained that he would be given up and together the father and the son and the Holy Spirit show that this was their plan from all of eternity and the fact that he was raised again from the dead to give us hope and to help us understand that when Christ died upon the cross, our sin died with him. If you were to think this morning in the secret recesses of your own heart about the worst sin that you have ever committed and you were to think about that sin and the shame of that sin, and the guilt of that sin, and the hell that you deserve for that sin, if you would take that sin and that guilt 
and look to Christ and give it to Christ and seek his forgiveness. Even that sin, as bad as it is, has been forgotten and forgiven. Only through the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, you can't have a gospel if you're not willing to talk about sin. And you can't have a Christian who isn't willing to admit they are the chief of sinners. That's why humility is the most obvious mark of a true Christian. When you see a prideful Christian, go ahead and put quotation marks around Christian. Because someone who has been humbled by the gospel understands that if it wasn't for the death and resurrection of Christ, we would have no hope. What does this resurrection of Christ teach us? Well, it reveals the uninhibited power of Jesus. He rose again the third day under his own power. I have authority to lay my life down. I have authority to take it up again. The uninhibited power of Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to give you and to grant you eternal life. The promise is there for his people who claim that promise. You can be assured of it this morning because nothing can stop the power of Jesus. He did not stay in the grave. He is alive today. And he speaks to us through his word, declaring the victory of his death, burial, and resurrection. The resurrection reveals the uninhibited power of Jesus, but the resurrection also reveals that Jesus is the Son of God. You know, the Apostle Paul was quite clear about this when he said, that Jesus, Romans 1-4, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He was not merely a man. He's the God-man. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. The resurrection reveals that God declared him to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection reveals everything we need to know about Jesus, his uninhibited power, the fact that he's the son of God. The resurrection reveals that God's justice has been satisfied. I point you again to Romans chapter 8 and verse 34. Who is to condemn, Paul asks. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us he has satisfied God's justice he stands before the father his blood cries out on behalf of his people the resurrection reveals that he was raised not just for himself but for our justification again Romans 4 verse 24 it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification Christ did not die for you because you were worth dying for. He died for you so that through his death and through his resurrection, he could justify you. That is, he could declare you as righteous. It's a forensic term. 
that he makes a declaration. You're justified through faith. It's just as if you never sinned, even though you did. The resurrection points to justification. The resurrection reveals that he conquers all of our enemies. Paul is is so clear about that in, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says that he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death for God has put all things in subjection under his feet but when, he, when it says all things are put in subjection it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him when all things are subjected to him then the son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all you say what does that mean? it means that God is ruling over this world he has conquered all of his enemies And because of that, he guarantees that you too will be raised physically. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There is the hope of the resurrection. There is the hope that when your sinful body tent is folded up, you will enter the presence of God and his holy angels and on the final resurrection day your flesh will be perfected and joined with your soul. You will have no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more pain, no more worry, no more grief because Jesus has conquered death. Jesus has conquered death. His resurrection also finally reveals that he is head of the church he is head of the church in Ephesians 1 Paul speaks about the immeasurable greatness of his power God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet he gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all He is the head of the church. He is the head of his body. And where is he today? He's at the right hand of the Father. That's why we are to seek the heavenly things. We are to seek and think upon heavenly things. Seek that which is above. Look to Christ. Trust in Christ and in Christ alone. He has been raised and he intercedes for us before the throne of God. You know, one way to set apart Christ's resurrection from all the other resurrections in Scripture is to recognize this fact, and you can compare it to Lazarus' resurrection. Lazarus rose by the power of another. Christ rose by his own power. Christ rose as one immortal that will never die again. Lazarus died again. What did Jesus say to Lazarus when he was yet dead? Lazarus, come forth, the voice of Christ. Even today, Christ calls into the dark, dead tombs of men's souls. Even today, Jesus is raising souls from the dead. And if you hear him, if you hear him call out to you, rise and come forth, you can be assured that 
Forgiveness is yours. Resurrection life is yours. All because of his death, all because of his resurrection. So don't have an Easter lily theology. See and behold, the resurrected, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Praise him that death no longer has sway over you, that you belong to God in Christ. You are more than a conqueror through faith in him and in his finished work. He's head of the church. He's king of the world. He has conquered all of his enemies, essentially. The kingdom is his, the glory is his, the honor is his, the power is his, but it is only his because, first of all, the shame was his upon the cross. May we look to this savior of shame and glory and cry for his mercy that we might be the recipients of his promised benefits to all that believe in the gospel. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your glorious word, a short passage of scripture that reminds us of so many precious truths. We can't speak about your resurrection without speaking about your death, Lord Jesus. And Holy Father, we thank you that you sent your son to die. And blessed Holy Spirit, we praise you that you empowered the ministry of Christ, the life of Christ. We praise you, our God, three in one, that he was raised from the dead as the second Adam, the one who represents his people. Lord, we claim those promises this morning. We look to him. We celebrate his resurrection, not because the culture says it's Easter, but because it's the Lord's day. It's Sunday. This is what we do every Sunday. We remind ourselves of our only hope, which is Christ. We can only have life in his name. He is the resurrection and the life. Help us to look to him and cling to these promises. We pray and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.